This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. Tonight, for our 177th episode, we discuss the U.S. space program biopic, The Right Stuff from 1983, celebrating its 30th birthday this year. Written and directed by Philip Kaufman, music by Bill Conti, starring Sam Shepard as Chuck Yeager, Fred Ward as Virgil I. Gus Grissom, Dennis Quaid as Gordon Gordo Cooper, Ed Harris as John Glenn, Scott Glenn as Alan Shepard, Lance Henriksen as Walter Wally Shearer, Scott Paulin as Donald K. Deke Slayton, Barbara Hershey as Glennis Yeager, Veronica Cartwright as Betty Grissom, and Mary Jo Deschanel as Annie Glenn. Recognition for this movie? The Right Stuff was released on October 21st, 1983, based on the book of the same name. The film would make an estimated $21.1 million domestically during its run on an estimated budget of $27 million. The Right Stuff received overwhelming acclaim from critics. Roger Ebert named The Right Stuff Best Film of 1983, writing, There was a lot going on, and there's a lot going on in the movie, too. The Right Stuff is an adventure film, a special effects film, a social commentary, and a satire. It joins a short list of recent American movies that might be called experimental epics. Movies that have an ambitious reach through time and subject matter that spend freely for locations or special effects, but that consider each scene as intently as an art film. It's a great film. He later named it one of the best films of the decade and wrote The Right Stuff as a greater film because it is not a straightforward historical account, but pulls back to chronicle the transition from Jaeger and other test pilots to a mighty public relations enterprise. He later put it at number two on his 10 best of the 1980s, behind Martin Scorsese's Raging Bull. Gene Siskel, Ebert's co-host of At The Movies, also named The Right Stuff the best film of 1983, and said, it's a great film and I hope everyone sees it. Siskel also went on to include The Right Stuff at number three on his list of the best films of the 1980s, behind Shoah, which I've never heard of, and Raging Bull. The Right Stuff would be nominated for seven Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Supporting Actor for Shepard, Art Direction and Cinematography, and it won for Film Editing, Original Score, Sound, and Sound Effects Editing. To me, that says that uh, apparently there were much, much longer films nominated for Best Editing. Anyway. In, okay. In 20... 20- <laughs> In 2013, the film was selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry. The Right Stuff currently holds a 96% among critics on Rotten Tomatoes, a 91 score on Metacritic, and a 4 out of 5 on Letterboxd. So, Dad, as we begin each week, what is your relationship to this film? This is a film that um, uh, was released while I was in college and working and everything else. I'm one of many who wanted to see the film and never got to the theater to see it because every dime I had was being saved for school. And so I ended up watching it uh, about, uh, I want to say it was about six months after it was released on HBO. But I mean, it was a well-known movie at the time. 
and it chronicled John Glenn's exploits within the space program at a time when he was a potential candidate for president that next year, uh, 1984, to run against Ronald Reagan. Hmm. First time I've ever seen the film. Really, the only reason that I'd even heard of it was as you kept mentioning how much you loved this film. So I have never seen it. I put it on the list specifically because you kept talking about how you wanted to have it on the show. So here we are. So what is this movie exactly about? It's a biopic of all of the individuals who advanced technology, space, travel, airline or air flight, etc. But it's also about people who put their lives at risk for greater good or for a greater purpose. And I mean, the reason it's entitled The Right Stuff is because not everybody could do what these men were doing. Um, They were a very elite group, and it does a nice job of humanizing them. We, you know, the public relations were such that they were constantly being put on a pedestal, and they were just men for the most part. And it, it kind of brings back that heroes are more common men who just do extraordinary things from time to time. And that ultimately is what this film is about, is these were men that just were put into an opportunity to do something historic and meaningful and magnanimous, and they did it. Well, I do think that the film is implied in the title. I agree with you there. Because to me, this is about the intangibles it took for some men to strap themselves literally to a bomb for the glory of exploring where we've never gone before. Now, you could say that's partly due to patriotism or whatever else. I do think there's an element of thrill-seeking, and it's probably the same stuff that makes Tom Cruise try and do a bigger stunt for the next Mission Impossible every time. It's probably the same type of thing, you know, like race car drivers have, which is, you know, they're they're thrill junkies. For that matter... Professional athletes have a tendency to put themselves in those positions as well because they're continually trying to put themselves into challenges or situations that are stressful where the adrenaline is flowing. I can certainly buy that. Uh, It's certainly not lost on me there. I just think that if we're going to put it in a historical context, it's the one time where it really overlapped where you had people of the exact right characteristics for whatever this particular mission was needed. There are probably still people that are capable of doing something to this extent, but maybe not to the level where it was so unknown. Like, obviously, we still have astronauts, but they're not on the level of what could literally be labeled at sometimes a suicide mission. The fact that we only had a certain number of people killed during this entire program is kind of amazing in itself. Uh, Yes, it actually is. And when you start researching and spending any time reading about it, where there were so many different things that could have gone wrong and didn't, or they've had the right person in the right position. I mean, after all, 
The reason why Alan Shepard was the first American in space was because he had been a Navy pilot and was used to maneuvering craft onto an aircraft carrier. And so they thought he would probably be the kind of guy that if something had to abort, he would be better off uh, as the pilot trying to save himself and the capsule than any of the others because of that experience. So how did this inform your appreciation, love, etc., for the history of the space program, at least in the U.S.? I mean, I remember going into kindergarten and watching, you know, the moon landings and the walking on the moon and such. I don't remember Armstrong and Aldrin as much because I would have been like five. So I don't remember a whole lot, but I used to keep like uh, I would cut out all the articles of every moon landing. Started with Apollo 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 and would make a scrapbook with all the articles. And so I was like really into it at that time. And then the history of it. And I remember reading the right stuff, the book by Tom Wolfe. And I can't remember if I read it before the movie or after the movie. I think I might've read it during the summer that, um, No, I take it back. I think I read it before it was released on HBO. I read the book over my Christmas holiday. This kind of uh, opened up a lot of the history that I did understand. And as I said, it humanized them because, you know, these were larger than life figures. You never thought about the fact that uh, they're going to have to uh, urinate potentially in their spacesuits or or they're going to have problems at home or they're going to be potentially um, hooking up with other women other than their wives and all kinds of stuff. I don't know. I just kind of put it all in perspective, but it was, uh, I think it really opened it up for me. And I think I've read maybe five books now on, on the space program overall. So do you want to give some more background on the film? Do you have a plot summary ready for us? Sure. The Right Stuff is a captivating film that takes audiences on an exhilarating journey through the early days of the United States space program. Set during the Cold War era, the movie chronicles the true story of the first seven American astronauts who, with courage, determination, and a touch of bravado, sought to conquer the final frontier. As the astronauts engage in grueling training, endure life-threatening missions, and navigate the complexities of fame and heroism, the right stuff paints a vivid picture of their sacrifices and triumphs, and showcases the raw human spirit that drove these pioneers to boldly venture into the unknown, highlighting their camaraderie, resilience, and unwavering determination. The Right Stuff celebrates the indomitable human spirit and the daring individuals who paved the way for future generations to explore the cosmos. Thank you. Did you know? According to NASA, the mysterious fireflies observed by John Glenn on his first orbital flight were actually condensed ice crystals from the small hydrogen peroxide rockets used for altitude control illuminated by sunlight. 
Upon use, many of them formed a particulate cloud around the spacecraft and attached themselves to the skin of the vehicle as well. This was confirmed by astronaut Scott Carpenter on the next Mercury flight when he banged on the craft's side, causing more of the flakes to break free and become visible. Did you know? While several of the lead actors chose to meet their real-life counterparts, Scott Glenn elected not to meet with Alan Shepard. Scott said he wanted to get down Shepard's character and nuances by observation and by hearing others' point of view. After filming, the real Alan Shepard wrote writer and director Philip Kaufman and commented on Scott Glenn's spot-on performance, except for, quote, not being nearly as good-looking as he was. Did you know? It is generally believed that Gus Grissom was not at fault in the real-life hatch-blowing incident on the Liberty Bell 7 capsule. Kickback from the manual activation switch caused a telltale bruise to form on the hand activating it, and Grissom never developed the bruise. Wally Shearer, at the end of his Mercury 8 spaceflight, deliberately activated his own hatch to demonstrate how the bruise formed and exonerate his comrade. The most likely explanation for Grissom's hatch blowing is that the external release lanyard came loose as it was only held in place with a single screw, a design that was changed to be more secure for subsequent flights. NASA apparently believed in Grissom's innocence as well, as he remained in a prime rotation spot for subsequent Gemini and Apollo flights. There is also significant belief among astronauts of that time Had he not been killed in the Apollo 1 fire, Grissom would have been the first man to walk on the moon. Did you know? During the week of April 4, 1999, Gus Grissom's lost Liberty's Bell 7 capsule was located and recovered on the ocean floor 90 miles northeast of the Great Abaco Island in the Bahamas. It underwent a restoration and went on a national tour before being placed in a permanent exhibit at the Cosmosphere, a space museum in Hutchinson, Kansas. The hatch, which many thought would have proved or disproved Grissom's contention that it blew open on its own, has not been recovered. Inside the capsule, the restorers found a large number of mercury dimes that Grissom had brought along as souvenirs. During the bar scene before Grissom's flight, two rolls of dimes can be seen on the bar. And with that, we'll take our first break and we'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode... Next week, for our 178th episode, we discuss our oldest film to date on the show with the best unique and artistic picture, Sunrise, A Song of Two Humans, directed by F.W. Murnau, written by Carl Mayer, music by Hugo Riesenfeld, starring Janet Gaynor and George O'Brien. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. I have long been in contention that that is actually a shared best picture, the first Oscars, because that was the best unique and artistic film, whereas Wings was the most outstanding film. So there was no true best picture. There was technically two. And I would be all for the Oscars kind of bringing that back. But I know how that sits with everybody else. (laughs) If you did like best small production budget and then best large production budget. (laughs) Yeah. No, if you did that for last year's Oscars, I think it would have been best small budget film probably would have still say stayed the same with what eventually won best picture E E A A O, but we probably would have had top gun Maverick as the best big film. And I think more people probably would have been happy with that. 
they're going to have to do something at some point because they're going to have to think think of how they're going to define stuff because the distinction between film and television is blurring so much that there's going to be something that people are saying qualifies as a film and it's television versus something that's television, you know, that or a film that qualifies and I mean, I'm just waiting for the opportunity where some the same thing gets an Emmy and an Oscar. I thought we almost had that kind of a couple of years ago. If you remember the ESPN documentary, one best documentary, but it was the O.J. Simpson versus, I think it was America documentary ESPN did. It was a five-part doc. There's no way it should have been deemed as one movie. It should have been up for Emmys, but it somehow won at the Oscars because they debuted it. And it was like... I want to say it was like a eight hour movie, essentially. I mean, who was sitting through that in the theater, but they showed it in theaters to get it in for the Oscars. Well, it, they did think about putting it in theaters directly for eight hours, but the cost of the depends was so high. It didn't pay. Yeah, there should have been several intermissions in that to allow people to go to the bathroom because there's no way. There's just no way. They should have had one in Oppenheimer for that matter. Well, actually, if you read, there are usually articles anymore ahead of time, and I read one where it's like, here's the best time to go to the bathroom. (laughs) Yeah, okay, sure. That makes perfect sense. Whatever happened to intermissions? Because they had them in, like, Dr. Zhivago, they had it in The Bridge Over the River. Is it just David Lean films? No, that was in Gone with the Wind. It was in several. I think there's an intermission in The Music Man from 1960 with Robert Preston. There's one in Reds with Warren Beatty from 80. Yeah. So, I mean, there's there's a history of these with epics having an intermission. I think there's one in Ben-Hur, maybe. But it's usually an older thing. Yeah, it should almost cut a deal with, like, um, I don't know, Raisinette. We're going to have an intermission, and we'll just put big box of Raisinettes on the screen. Time for an intermission. I did find it interesting that the one award show I would think is best positioned to make this transition because they're the only award show that awards both movie and TV simultaneously is the Golden Globes. And yes, I know there's controversy about who picks the winners of that? But every single network, streamer, etc., passed on showing the Globes. They have nobody to do the TV show. I don't know, because it's been kind of a mess. And you can only have Ricky Gervais do it so often. I mean, he's running out of people to offend. No, I'm sure he could find plenty new ones. I suppose. Anyway, we digress. Let's get back to our movie of the evening. Best performance is up. Who did you have down? Sam Shepard. I mean, Sam Shepard was a playwright. He's done some acting. He was just phenomenal in this film, as far as I'm concerned. Every time he was on screen, you were you were drawn to him. I almost went with him also for most charismatic, but I went a different route simply because I couldn't pass up this guy's performance in the film. Yeah, I don't think there's an obvious choice to this one, so I was curious if you'd end up going in the same direction that I did. 
because this is an actor that you have shown a fondness for on multiple occasions. He's in your favorite space movie, which is not this one, but another one that we've already covered. And that'd be Ed Harris. I went with him because I thought Glenn was the most compelling character in the entire film. And his relationship, I think, is one of the more endearing qualities in the entire thing for me. Yeah, I I, um, I had him originally. Then I thought about it as far as as performance and what was expected and all that. And so instead, I went with Ed Harris for most charismatic because he was by far, I think, the most charismatic performer within the film. Well, and by the same token, I went on the flip side of that and went with married Joe Deschanel, his wife, as my most charismatic. Because again, I think that relationship is the most intimate, special, I guess I'll reuse the word, but endearing part of the film for me. When they have those little intimate scenes or moments, I thought that was the stuff that probably worked the best out of any of the relationships to me. It felt wholesome. Uh, it felt genuine. They had obvious chemistry with each other. And you could tell there was some level of an affection between the two. So if it's really imitating real life, you know, I can understand a little bit of how he became kind of a darling of politics and the rest of it, because he just had a certain charismatic quality that Ed Harris projects well when he's in a lot of the PR moments. But I think there's also a human quality to him comparative to some of the other guys that if they were anything, or at least how they were portrayed in the movie, they were thrill seekers that really didn't have a lot beyond that surface level quality. A lot of their internal characteristics, to me, were lacking. Their character was somewhat immoral, and they kind of, for lack of a better term, flew by the seat of their pants, whether in life or in a plane or a rocket. By the way, just for a quick aside, Ed Harris, or excuse me, uh, John Glenn himself, um, had a very famous cult or wingman when he fought uh, and flew jets during Korea. One Mr. 401, Ted Williams. They remained close friends and often met and had lunch right up until Ted's death. Hmm. And subsequent freezing. Yeah, and actually uh, John Glenn got involved in that situation by parts of his family when they uh, cryogenically froze his head. Still super weird. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Best secondary performance. I went with Scott Glenn. He's a guy that as a character actor, I'm usually grateful to see him pop up and stuff. He's great in Silence of the Lambs. He's been great in Training Day. He's just a great character actor. And I thought this was one of the few times that he really got kind of a leading performance to a degree in a film. I thought he was also probably the second most human of any of the characters in this, please God, don't let me fuck it up. Yeah. Yeah. You forgot one of my favorite performances of his, and that's in The Hunt for Red October. I don't remember him being in that. It's been a long time since I've seen that film. Well, he's the submarine captain. I thought that was Connery. No, he was the Russian on the other sub. But he was the submarine captain, was he not? Yeah, no. He the, was the... Russian, the, the Russian commander with the Scottish accent? Yes. Yes. 
The only one who had a real Russian accent was Sam Neill. But being Australian, I don't know, maybe he could see Russia from his back door, too. I don't know. Anyway, my best secondary performance, I went with Dennis Quaid because I thought Gordo Cooper was supposedly a uh, central figure in this. And he came across as being swarmy without being repulsive. (laughs) It would have been real easy for this character to just be so arrogant and such that you did not like him at all. But Quaid played it in such a way that you were endeared to him and the character. See, I think that's more of a byproduct of charisma that he had an intangible quality that made you like him despite everything going on on screen. Okay, I can understand your comment. Is that who you picked for most charismatic? No, I already gave mine for charismatic. I'm just saying you probably should have flipped those two. Yeah, I went with Ed Harris, as I said, for most charismatic because I thought he was really the darling of the movie. Yes, I know. We've already talked about that. Yeah, I know. All right. Let's move to best scene then. I have Breaking the Sound Barrier, Pre-Flight Testing, The Glens, Mercury Press Conference, Shepard Waiting to Launch, Grissom's Controversy, Don't Keep the VP Waiting, Glens Orbits, Testing the Lockheed NF-104A, and End of Mercury. Is that covered enough for you? I know I'm leaving out some pretty big swaths of the first half of the movie, but that <laughs> first half could have used some editing. Yeah, I, it had been a while since I'd seen it, and yes, they could have probably cut 20 or 30 minutes out of the beginning of the film and made it a lot tighter. So what out of these is your best scene? I like the ending scene. It's the combination of, you know, the fan dance, and they're talking about, it, it's a, it's the celebration of the astronauts but at the same time Jaeger uh, makes an effort to get to the stratosphere where he's almost in orbit with his plane and it, it kind of exemplifies to me the changing of the guard and the fact that he to some extent kind of regrets not having an opportunity to uh to go into that next realm, into that next operation. So to me, that was, it tied the whole film together. So just to clarify, I think you're talking about a completely different scene than the ending. Well, it's, it's the, it's the scene where it's, they're going back and forth between the fan dance and Jaeger uh, in the plane and he ends up parachuting out yeah, that's the testing of the Lockheed. That's not the ending of the Mercury program where Gordo Cooper goes up. That's a scene by itself. That's the ending scene. Okay, well then I'm one scene before that, so... Okay. I actually had, and it's... For a film that's supposed to be about the space program itself, it's really more of a character study of at least probably half of the seven original astronauts. I had the Mercury press conference as being that examination. I thought it was a good recreation of the personalities. I thought it was probably the most telling as to what the characters of these people were going to be. And when they all raised their hand to be the first guy to go, I thought that was a good demonstration of kind of who these guys were all in one visual cue. 
So for me, I thought that was the scene that probably worked the best. As far as favorite scenes, I kind of already tipped my hand a little bit. I went with that intimate moment or that scene between John Glenn and his wife where they're just kind of sitting around and you realize that she has a stutter for the first time, but he really seems to have this great care and affection for her and a protection of her despite obviously he's putting his own life on the line, but there's a softness, a vulnerability between the two. I just thought it was a really well-crafted scene that probably doesn't necessarily fit into the rest of the movie exactly, but it's an expansion of who that character is and makes him probably the most interesting person to follow through the rest of the film, at least for me. For me, my favorite scene was the seven fighting the rocket scientists with the press standing outside. A couple of scenes before John Glenn dresses down the group for uh, womanizing and being out and drinking too much and etc. This scene ultimately brings the seven together as a unit and shows, you know, it's us against them. And we, and we understand we have power because of the press. We can dictate how things are going to be done. You know, we're going to have a window in this capsule. We're going to have this, we're going to have that. And you can see on the expressions of the rocket scientists that they realize that they've lost control of this and that they have to now placate these seven. And it brings them as one unit forward where they're constantly speaking as one. Once again, you go off the board. What do you mean? I didn't even mention that scene. You went completely oh. off the board. Okay, well, sorry. But that, to me, was a, was a uh, pivotal moment. As far as most indelible, the thing that will stick out to me the most is LBJ sitting in the back of his limo, not being able to get into some housewife's home. <laughs> yeah, that was good. That was a good one. To me, it was John Glenn in the spacecraft. That whole situation, the heat shield, to me, that was, that was, I'll always remember that aspect of it. All right, well, that's our cue for break number two. We'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, and before we get to the Stanley rubric in a minute, if you're ever curious about our Master Greatest Movies of All Time list that has every graded movie we've ever discussed on the show, there's a link in the episode description of every episode of this show, or you can go to RonnieDuncanStudios.com backslash Podcast and find it as the top entry on the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast show page. That is the grades we've done so far for all 165 movies we've graded, and we continue to add more each week. Make sure to check that out as we go and follow along. Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? Yes. Clarence Avant, 92 American Hall of Fame music executive and film producer. Save the Children, Jason's Lyric. Founder of Sussex Records, longtime best friend of Quincy Jones, and mentor to Jim Brown, Babyface, Jimmy Avine, and many others. Magoo. 50, American Rapper, Timbaland, and Magoo, and Songwriter, Up Jumps to Boogie. Butchie, 76, American Artist and Actor, Dawn of the Dead, and a Stuntman. Darren Kent, 36, English Actor, Writer, and Director, was in Game of Thrones, East Enders, Dungeons and Dragons, 
honor among thieves. And so we honor these here for their contributions with a moment of silence here in their honor. Thank you. Let's move to best funniest lines. Chief scientist, our Germans are better than their Germans. I suggested changing it to our Nazis are better than their Nazis. <laughs> but okay. Alan Shepard, dear Lord, please don't let me fuck up. Chuck Yeager, I'm a fearless man, but I'm scared to death of you. Glennis Yeager, oh no, you're not, but you ought to be. John Glenn, Annie, listen to me, okay? You listening? If you don't want the vice president or the TV networks or anybody else to come into the house, then that's it. As far as I'm concerned, they're not coming in. And I'll back you all the way, 100% on this. And you tell them that, okay? I don't want Johnson or any of the rest of them to set as much as one toe inside our house. Annie, okay. John, you tell them that Astronaut John Glenn told you to say that. Alan Shepard, request permission to relieve bladder. Gordo? Gordo? Gordon Cooper. Look, the man has got to go. Now it's either that or we get out the lug wrench and pry him out. Chief Scientist, with resignation. Do it. In the suit. Gordon Cooper. Jose, permission to wet your diapers anytime, son. Chuck Yeager. Monkeys? You think a monkey knows he's sitting on top of a rocket that might explode? These astronaut boys, they know that. See? Well, I'll tell you something. It takes a special kind of man to volunteer for a suicide mission, especially one that's on TV. Old Gus, he did all right. That was the last one I had. Uh, I have one more. Gus Grissom, listening to the NASA recruiter. Say, hot dog, what the hell does astronaut mean anyway. Gordon Cooper, thanks for a moment. Star Voyager. Gus, Star Voyager. Gus Grissom. I kind of like the sound of that. Let's take it to the Stanley rubric. All right. Since this is a film that has more intrinsic meaning for you than it does for me, do you want to go first or second? I'll go second. All right. Kind of curious to see where your legacy is going to go. From an industry standpoint, this apparently was a very critically praised movie at the time. It continues to be, at least, or it had through most of the 80s, been one of the critic favorites. It's got high appeal on all of the critic scores for Rotten Tomatoes, Metacritic, etc., and for most people that see it, there seems to be some value to that. The industry also has to appreciate it to a degree to do a remake of it, produced by the National Geographic Channel, that was a TV series on Disney Plus earlier this year, or I think last year, one of the two. Well, I can't give it great marks because it's not one of those easily recognizable critic favorites like some it's still high up there, so I gave it a four on the industry. Unfortunately, on the public side, if this is an important film and I have not heard of it, it must be like way down the list of important films because I've seen a lot of important films. I've heard of a lot of important films. This doesn't seem to be like high up on an audience recognition, appreciation, 
honestly, if you asked probably everybody in this office about this movie, you might get one person who has seen it and maybe two to three that have maybe heard of it. I think your friend circle is a little bit different. And so on an anecdotal level, like if we asked the round table that you usually carry on Thursday night, I'm pretty sure the majority, if not most or all of those people know roughly about this movie or the book or something to do with all of this space program stuff. But I just don't, I don't think the audience is there. I can come up, but I have it at a one on the audience side right now for a five. Well, I'm not far off. I actually had for the public 1.5. This film just fell off the face of the earth. I love the film. I think it's a great film. It was well done. I watched it again, other than the fact that the first part was a lot longer than I remembered. The film itself was was well done. It was inspiring. It was, you know, it was everything I had thought about the film and loved about the film to begin with. But I, I think I'm kind of alone in that. I think after about the first five to seven years, it just kind of disappeared. The public's lost consciousness of this film. Now, there have been a ton of space epics or space biopics, um, whether it's more documentary or more you know, studies about the individual astronauts. I know there was one specifically about the moon landing and, and such. Then we had Apollo 13. Then we did another film about... First Man, that was uh, Damien Chazelle's film a few years ago. I, so I'm going to go, I, you had, what was your score for industry? 3.5? I had a 4 and a 1. A 4 and a 1. So I'm going to go with, I'm going to stay with your 4. because I thought about a little bit higher because it kind of started out the other films, but the other films really were independent more or less of this it's not like they took place because hey this film did so great or was so good it tanked at the box office which i don't remember why or what was going on but yeah i don't know so i'm at a four and a 1.5 5.5 okay part of the reason that i didn't feel that i could go much higher than that was I originally had it at a 1.5 for legacy. But when I went to impact and significance, I had to have a place to go. Cause I thought it was, had to be bigger in the moment that it is even in the legacy for the audience side of things. This is the 57th highest grossing film in 1983. Now it was <laughs> limited released in October, but it, it's going to be hard for it to, have much, much lower. Here are just a few of the things that finished ahead of this movie in the total of box office for 1982, or excuse me, for 1983. Cujo, Richard Pryor, Here and Now, Monty Python's The Meaning of Life, An Officer and a Gentleman, Scarface, Sophie's Choice, Twilight Zone, The Movie, Ooh, Psycho oh. 2, Porky's 2, E.T. in its second year, The Verdict, Jaws 3D, Terms of Endearment, 
Ugh. Yeah, okay. I mean, I'm not even cracking the top ten yet. Yeah. So, yeah. This is a film that did not produce well in its moment. That being said, on the industry side of it, I gave it much higher marks. It was even more overwhelming for critics who saw it at the time. It got awards recognition. While it didn't end up beating Terms of Endearment for Best Picture, I think it was probably right there. Another long, drawn-out, kind of epic-quality movie. Did nobody have an editor in the 80s? Like, seriously. I guess maybe their idea of film was, we'll just bore them to the point where they surrender. (laughs) Well, I mean, I just, Uh. I don't know what, what exactly happened. We complain about length of film this time and age, but The Deer Hunter was nearly four hours long, and just about every Best Picture winner up until... Oh, gosh, maybe The Silence of the Lambs had to be three hours long, at least. So Amadeus, The Last Emperor, I think even Rain Man's like two and a half hours. Yeah. And of course, The President starred in Bedtime for Bonzo. So we have long, artistic, flourishing movies. And the head of the free world was a B actor who uh, starred with a chimp who actually had top billing. Anyway, it was an interesting time. Sure. Okay. So I have a 4.5 for the industry, and I had a 1.5 for the audience for a 6 total. I have 4.5 for the industry. I have a much higher number for the public. I have a 3. And the reason why is, is yes, it tanked at the box office. But within the first year, this was huge on... What was a new thing? VHS. This really, between HBO and VHS, I think everybody of my age or in my parents' age saw this film. But it wasn't at the theaters. It was one that you didn't want to pay the full dollar or the full price, which I think at the time was like 3 bucks, 250 to get into the theater. But you were more than willing to drop the dollar or two dollars it was for the video to uh, watch it at home or to have HBO. So I think it had a larger following than what you think. And I, I'm sorry, historically, there is no way that is even possible. The VHSs at the time, I think one of the first real big ones that was coming out would have been Raiders of the Lost Ark. So yes, VHS existed. But we're talking like you were dropping 40 or 50 bucks on one video. So if you were going to get something, it was not going to be a movie that didn't even make back its money at the box office. You were buying E.T. or Jaws or Raiders or... I'm not talking buying. I'm talking rentals. Rental was not that big yet. Yes. Home video and the the rental stores was not big until the mid to late 80s. But it wasn't the stores. It was every mom and pop place. A TV appliance store used to have a video rack. Uh, convenience stores used to have videos. The grocery stores used to have video racks. It was there. And I'm telling you, because I went and researched The fact that this was one of the early video darlings. It had done better or almost better than any of the other video films 
that were out about that time. And it also had popularity on HBO. So I went with how, a three. How can you possibly measure that? Okay, they must have some metric of doing it. So I'm giving it a little higher marks there. Okay. So I'm at a 7.5. Yes, I figured that out because I did the math. Good. Anyway, that's a 5.25 for Legacy and a 6.75 for Impact and Significance. Novelty. The graphics were somewhat novel for their time, and I have to give them a little bit of credit for how this is kind of put together because... It looks like a much more modern film than it is. Like, I don't see a ton of difference between this and Apollo 13 other than them floating around in the capsule itself. But it looks very similar in kind of how the rest of it's put together. So I don't think it's that far off as far as that. But I just don't see that I can give it extra points for execution or creativity. This was... A historical event that I'm sure a lot of people kind of already knew about. I didn't feel like as far as a biopic was anything special per se that offered a little bit beyond kind of what the stories were. It maybe emphasized a certain characteristic about these figures and gave them a little bit more meaning, but it wasn't something that I thought was for a biopic again, which I always struggle with something that was different or really again, novel. So I had a six. Okay. I could not think of a event, series of events, set of circumstances that were strung together and done in a way that told the story of an entire group or an entire movement the way this did. There's just nothing. And I think it foreshadowed a large uh, amount of space-related films that came afterwards as far as, you know, at least biopics or historical films or whatever. The method or means by which it done it was not as unique, but the context was. So I went with an 8.5. You're not thinking hard enough. I am thinking hard enough. No, you're not. Because there's plenty of stories that have emphasized the collective group epic of a biopic, whether or not we're talking okay. about the character study of other things, like Spartacus could be in that realm of characterization. Ben-Hur, yes, neither of those is like actual fact or whatever else, but Dr. Zhivago, Ridge on the River Kwai, Lawrence of Arabia, they're all telling multiple character stories over time in their character studies. It's the epic. This is just another form of an epic. Even when we talked about Ebert and Siskel, they were mentioning that this is a different kind of epic. So I don't think it's that novel even in that form of it. If you want to give up a little bit on the creativity, that's fine. But that's why I didn't give it any higher than what I did. Okay. Okay. I just, I'm sorry. For, for you, that constantly picks apart when there are very minimal things, you know, just because The Godfather is not the first gangster film ever to be made somehow that's a markdown but the epic has happened for ever literally going back to intolerance and birth of a nation with dw griffith but somehow this is you know that novel and that different on that story length because it actually focused on some real people that you connected with so we need we see where your your points shaving goes so all right anyway 
So that was an 8.5 for you. I believe that's a 7.25 between the two of us. Classicness, I'll let you lead off. Okay. We did not have a large number of minorities or significant females, but unlike a lot of the space program and the things that were being written about it, uh, the coverage and such, the wives had a more instrumental role in this than what a lot of people would have normally thought. So I'm giving it a little bit of higher marks for that. I mean, after all, it is based on a true story, so it's not like you can just insert a Hispanic character or astronaut in here um, because it's historically based. I gave it a little bit of points down because of the whole play with Bill Dana and the Jose Jimenez character and and Alan Shepard. It's a little bit racist. I understand that that's reality and what was going on, but it's it's a little kind of um, cringy at times. So I went with an eight for classicness. Okay, so we're not terribly far apart. Basically, you have been above me on every one of these so far and probably will be also for rewatchability. I thought that was kind of an obvious one going forward, but at least we're pretty close relatively on this one. I'm surprised that you said that there were some cringeworthy moments that you somehow are above me then, because I kind of gave this a pass, given that it's based on historical events, and it's not really depicting anything that I think is outside the values of the 60s. So it's kind of, it gets a little bit of a pass for that. But sure, it's a choice to include the late night joke or the running gag, as you mentioned. But I think this movie can get a little bit of credit because if it does not pass the Bechdel test, it's pretty darn close, which is a high barometer to begin with. I think it doesn't quite, but it's it's relatively within the range of what could be because the wives are important in this film. And there's a lot of conversations between them and their wives or between the wives amongst themselves. They're kind of the background players in some category, but they're not scenery, if that makes sense. I also didn't find anything that I felt was too objectionable. Thus, I felt this was kind of in the range of, it's not really that ahead of its time, because it's still highlighting some older values. It's not really cringy either, at least for me, because it's highlighting stuff that did actually happen. So I went with a baseline seven. This is about right in the sweet spot where it's neither up it's not down. I'm comfortable with this being kind of just generically classic. So seven. Okay. So that'd be a 7.5 between the two of us. Rewatchability. You want to take this first? Well, I mean, obviously I love the film. I always have. I will admit that I'm going to be more inclined to watch the film if I'm finding it on TV and I'm flipping the channels around and stop. And it's more towards the middle of the film than starting it from the very beginning. So I went with an eight simply because it's a film I haven't watched in a long time. And I regret having not watched it again in a long time. But I may very well fast forward through about the first 40 minutes, 30 to 40 minutes of the film. So this is going to be the category we're furthest apart in, which I don't think you can blame me for. 
the likelihood of me to turn this on again on my own is probably a one. <laughs> the first okay. half of the film, like I'm not somebody who's just going to like watch the second half of the film. The first half of the film, I'd be just comfortable pretty much skipping all of the Chuck Yeager stuff. It just didn't feel all that necessary to me. This could have been really pared back. And if you give me the last hour and a half of the film and maybe have a little bit better ending where it wasn't quite so just generally abrupt, I think I could have made this into a much better understanding movie. But okay, fine. Now, like you, I think this is something that if it's just on somewhere and you catch it about halfway in, I'll give it about a three for whether or not I would just sit and watch and enjoy the film because I did kind of once it gets some momentum and you really get into the Mercury space program and get stuff going where they're actually going up and doing some stuff and there's some better momentum to the film. It's not quite so slow. Then I'll enjoy this. So I had a four. Okay. So that would be a six average between the two of us. Audience score on this one, we had an 84% for Google users and 90% for Rotten Tomato users, giving us an 8.7. So, to repeat the categories, we had a 5.25 average for Legacy. We had a 6.75 average for Impact Significance. We had a 7.25 average for Novelty. We had a 7.5 for Classicness. We had a 6 for Rewatchability. And we had an 8.7 for audience score, giving us a final total of 41.45. And placing it on our list, tied with the artist. Okay. All right. If you agree or disagree with our scores, you can certainly provide us feedback at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. You can find a link on our website as well to send us comments that would be ronnieduncanstudios.com backslash podcast, or you can find us on our socials at podcast either on tiktok twitter or instagram all right that moves us to remaining questions i have none this is a real life event we've pretty much picked apart what happened to all of these guys there's books all over the place For a while, we could talk to most of them. We pretty much have as much information about them as possible. If you're asking something, it's about the choices of the movie itself or the emphasis on something. And I'm just, I'll I'll be honest, I'm not that interested to try and pick this apart or nitpick it really that much. No, there isn't any real remaining question. So do you have anything? No, I really don't have any remaining questions per se. Interestingly, your grandmother was watching at least the last part when we were watching it together, and uh, she asked if all seven of the astronauts went up, and I commented that no, only six of the original seven went into space on the Mercury and then triculated into the Gemini program. Donald Deke Slayton, who's from not far from where we are in Sparta, Wisconsin, did not because he had a heart murmur. So that's the only remaining question. He ultimately did go into space as part of the Apollo-Soyuz mission, which was Apollo 18. I did conveniently leave out that Alan Shepard was the only one to actually walk on the moon, which it alludes to during the course of the film. He's also the only one to ever play golf on the moon. Yes. Well, he was originally supposed to be the 
commander of Apollo 13, but ended up getting bumped because of uh, illness uh, in favor of Jim Lovell's group, which ill-fated group. So he ended up going to the moon on Apollo 17. Glenn never, I think, I don't even think Glenn lasted past Mercury. I think he uh, left or, uh, before the Gemini. I don't even think he went into the Gemini program because originally LBJ had thought about him as a vice presidential candidate in, uh, in 64, and he uh, instead chose to let the Democrats put him up for a seat in 64 that was a Republican seat in Ohio, his native state, and he won the Senate seat at that time and became a distinguished senator for a number of years. So that will take us to the end of the movie discussion. Do you have any remaining thoughts for the week? No, I'm starting to get a little concerned about the, uh, the strikes going on and the impact of what's going to happen for the end of this year and the beginning of next year as far as films and television and general entertainment production. So I'm actually in the process now of creating a list of films that I should have seen and haven't. So I actually saw a film that I did not see uh, when it was originally released and have never seen, which is Footloose. So I watched that over the weekend. I have a few more like that. I'm sure I have a bunch of those that I got to try and knock out yet. Uh, I've been on a uh, Steven Spielberg watch through recently for a podcast I'm supposed to guest on, on our friend of the show, Adam Hitchcock's streaming circuit podcast. I think we're supposed to rank the Steven Spielberg movies sometime like next year or something to that effect. So I've had it on my list for a while to watch through his entire filmography, and now I have access to basically all of it. So I'm going through piece by piece, and I watched Duel several weeks back, and i am been slowly making my way through Sugarland Express. Eventually, I'll get to the stuff that I think is a little bit more interesting. So Jaws would be next, and then Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which I haven't seen in a few years now. But uh, eventually, you asked me to tell you when I was going to watch 1941. <laughs> That's coming up. Uh, that was one where I watched it, and I'm like... Wow. I, I love Dan Aykroyd and John Bellucci, and I really liked Steven Spielberg after Jaws and Close Encounters. And then I watched this, and I'm like, what the fuck is this? It wasn't funny. It didn't make much sense. Yeah, it almost robbed us as one of the great living American filmmakers, because he was basically almost done at that point. Yeah, because I, I, I'm like, I couldn't understand what the hell it was and why anybody made this or thought it was funny. But that'll do it for us this week. Thank you for listening. This song of the man and his wife is of no place and every place. You might hear it anywhere at any time. For wherever the sun rises and sets, in the city's turmoil or under the open sky on the farm, life is much the same, sometimes bitter, sometimes sweet. Next week for our 178th episode, we discuss our oldest film to date on the show, with the best unique and artistic picture of 1927, Sunrise, A Song of Two Humans. Directed by F.W. Murnau, written by Carl Mayer, music by Hugo Riesenfeld, starring Janet Gaynor and George O'Brien. 
You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that more can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at thenewronnieduckinstudios.com or sign up for our newsletter, find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast, or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or TikTok at the handle at Podcast. Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM.